0: Hello, and welcome to episode 136 of Public Interest Podcast with your host, Jordan Cooper, where we interview politicians, activists, advocates, and others who seek to improve the state of the world. We're here today with Zach Kaufman, Senior Fellow at Harvard University's Kennedy School of Government and a former U.S. Supreme Court Fellow. Zach has published three books, including After Genocide, Social Entrepreneurship in the Age of Atrocities, and U.S. Law and Policy on Transitional Justice. Zach, how are you doing today?
1: I'm well, Jordan. Thank you for having me.
0: Glad to have you here. The first question I'd like to pose to you is what are you currently doing or what have you ever done to advance the
1: public interest and why? I've been interested in genocide and mass atrocity issues um, for about 20 years now. And so that's the issue area that I most work in. Um, and I've done so from uh, a number of different um, advantages. Um, most recently, uh, I work as an academic uh, writing and lecturing on these issues, raising public awareness about them uh, through my work, um, you know, making uh, policy suggestions. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the past, I've also served in government at the U.S. Department of State and the U.S. Department of Justice on these issues, and in three uh, international war crimes tribunals. And in addition, I've also been working uh, in nonprofit organizations and social uh, enterprises uh, on these issues as well. So what, I mean, not every person walking down the streets can
0: say that their career is in genocide studies, cool. as it were. What is it that originally attracted you to this subject area? How does one get into, involved?
1: I, I think it was sort of a confluence of a few different things. Um, first of all, my mother is, was born in South Africa. And so I was uh, raised from an early age um, learning about Africa. Um, and she uh, lived through um, part of the apartheid uh, era, and so I uh, learned early on about uh, discrimination. Um, I also happen to be Jewish, uh, and so I learned about um, the Holocaust uh, that uh, my people have suffered, and um, several of my relatives perished in the Holocaust. And so, um, like with my mother uh, coming from South Africa, again, from an early age, I learned about uh, discrimination. Um, Growing up in um, Morgantown, West Virginia, I personally faced um, several instances of uh, violent anti-Semitism. And so, you know, I I learned the lesson that innocence can sometimes suffer discrimination that can be manifested violently, um, and that people, even in positions of power, could either um, be bystanders or might even exacerbate uh, those situations. So fast forward to um, the time I, I was in uh, high school and the Rwandan genocide uh, occurred then in 1994 when I was a sophomore. And the parallels to the Holocaust were so uh, stark and significant. And um, I just had, you know, kind of a visceral reaction given um, the experiences that I had gone through, but also that um, I was raised to be cognizant of. Uh, And so I immediately became interested in um, somehow uh, becoming involved. And that was my early sort of impetus to become um, personally involved in helping to alleviate and address uh, genocide situations. I then became...
0: Well, allow me to interject right there. So in 1994, you were in high school in Pittsburgh, correct? Mm -hmm. That's right. So there were many individuals in high school in Pittsburgh at the time, correct? Yes. But not all of them ended up having quite an interest personal attachment to genocide, so you, could you delve a little bit in deeper? You said that there's a personal, you have personal family history with right. genocide in the past with apartheid in South Africa, but you said that for some that, that because of those reasons, you reacted somewhat differently to news of the Rwanda genocide. Can you how did your friends react? how was that how, What was going on in society that you reacted so much stronger?
1: I mean unfortunately, there really wasn't much. Um, public awareness about the Rwandan genocide—it's—it's it's really one of the tragedies uh, of it. Um, and I was just sort of unusually primed, I guess, to follow news coming out of Africa mm-hmm. um, and also news about genocide. And so, just you know, the combination of the two, because of where my mother had come from, and also uh, the Holocaust uh, again in in you know my family's background, um, I think just you know put me in a sort of unusual place to be um, uh, to be interested.
0: Interesting. All right. So you, you ended up going to college and right then that's really where you started studying genocide. Is that right?
1: That's right. Um, I, uh, m- most of my family, uh, or many of them at least are, are doctors. And I also went to school, uh, to college mm-hmm. thinking that I would also be sort of pre-med. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I started, um, because precisely actually because of the Rwandan genocide, um, taking classes on human rights and political science and sort of pre law uh, type classes um, and that 's where really um, my kind of formative uh, early education on human rights started um, and then I also was fortunate enough to get a, a fellowship to go to study human and minority rights in Europe mm-hmm. um, called Humanity in action and the program specialized in sort of or was inspired by the Danish rescue of the Jews during the holocaust and so um, you know, pulls together threads from, uh, you know, World War II, but also contemporary struggles and dealing with uh, human rights violations. And so that was, was
0: were you in Europe around the same time that this uh, Srebrenica massacre was happening and the whole Kosovo-Bosnia thing in Southern Europe?
1: It was about um, a year later, uh-huh. um, but, uh, but of course, that was also, you know, one of the, um, the tragedies that I was studying in college. Right. And, um, you know, Srebrenica, of course, is the, the worst... Uh, mass atrocity in Europe since World War II and the Holocaust, uh, and you know the reverberations of which we continue to deal with uh, today.
0: So you were in Europe and you were studying. Why is it that being pre-law? Why is it that getting a law degree, which you subsequently did obtain, why does that better prepare you to, I guess, prevent uh, humanitarian disasters in the future? Why would it be a lawyer? Why not?
1: Or what what pathway? Well, I would, I would suggest that um, people from all, all industries mm-hmm. um, could or perhaps should um, be involved in atrocity prevention and response. Um, we see amazing examples of um, physicians, for example, through Doctors Without Borders right. and Physicians for Human Rights um, who are involved in, in these issues, as well as others um, in technology and engineering and in, um, in sociology, psychology, uh, and others. It just seemed to me that my calling um, was in understanding um, the legal and political dynamics of um, of mass atrocities, and so right. that's what um, I felt called to uh, specialize in interesting okay so you're in Europe, and you what were you studying in particular out there? I was in Denmark, and so um, the, the beginning of the program kind of focuses on the Danish rescue of the Jews, mm-hmm. um, a very successful effort to um, save their Jewish population during uh, World War II, but then it moves through time to the current day to examine um, minori- minority rights violations in Europe um, more generally. And of course, today, uh, and, and since I was there, um, there are many instances of such, um, mm-hmm. and uh, And so it was really tying together um, the past to the present. So, And and
0: by the way, when you speak about the Danish incident with the Jews, is that where the king of Denmark said that he would wear the yellow Jewish star um, when the Nazis came in and all of his subjects were Danish subjects and Jewish or not,
1: the Nazis weren't going to take? That's right. King Christian was very um, protective of, and successfully so, of the Jewish population and um, not only, uh, you know, it, in the way that you mentioned, but also in helping ferry many of them um, to Sweden, uh, which was uh, neutral territory, so that they would be protected. So there's all these different massacres happening around the world, and they
0: continue today, and people may debate whether maybe there's Sudan or maybe in a, in a Democratic Republic or Congo or different areas of the world, but all of that is happening elsewhere to people who you've never met, right? You're from West Virginia. you went to high school in pennsylvania you live in massachusetts in washington dc you know you're you're not living in these communities what is it that that where's the empathy come from what is it that makes you care so much about what's happening to these people in other parts of the world
1: it's it's a great question i it's, it's hard to know exactly what you know what always makes us, us tick right and um but i but i would say actually i have i have lived in some of these communities so i've Spent quite a lot of time uh, living in and visiting uh, Rwanda, mm-hmm. um, but also neighboring countries uh, as well. And I've worked personally on some of the um, the war crimes investigations and prosecutions when I served at uh, at three of the tribunals: the one for Rwanda, the one for former Yugoslavia, and the Permanent uh, International Criminal Court. And all throughout, um, I've met victims, uh, survivors who um, have really touched me uh, with with their personal stories of what they've endured um and emerged from and um and you know those experiences have really stayed with me and and further inspire me to to remain focused in this field Um, and like you said i mean atrocities persist all around the world um in the countries that you mentioned but also we see syria for example is the um probably the biggest uh you know humanitarian crisis since the second world war um, and, you know, in addition to the African uh, situations that you mentioned, I would also point out um, in Burma the, um, the targeting of the Rohingya um, uh, for, um, you know, with atrocities as well. So um, we do see this, um, these mass atrocities uh, um, persist, uh, unfortunately, um, so many places in the world. So I'd
0: like to ask you at this point for a definition. Many of our listeners may be confused about what a genocide is and the difference between genocide and violence more generally. For instance, I once heard somebody say, well, you know, why, uh, why be so worried about the genocide of Jews in um, World War II? when there were you know, a lot of blacks killed in the slave trade. Mm-hmm. You know, wh- isn't that something worth worrying about? Was that genocide? Was that not genocide?
1: What is genocide, and why is it different than other types of violence? Um, it's a great question, and, and legal scholars have, um, have been working on this for, for quite some time. Um, you know, what really is the definition of genocide? And effectively, um, it is uh, the targeting in whole or in part a um, particular group, um, for uh, extermination. Uh, so it always is for killing all of the people in a particular group? Um, usually, yes. Um, there are other ways that you could so affect in- genocide. Um, mm-hmm. uh, but but typically, the, the way that we understand it is by killing in whole or in part a particular group. And one of the reasons why... Um, it is sometimes known as the crime of crimes Mm -hmm. uh, is that, and that's, that's a quote from the the Rwanda tribunal Mm -hmm. um, is that, you know, the targeting of some people um, is um, heinous uh, of course, but the, but the intentionality of trying to eliminate a whole group Mm -hmm. um, is one of the most um, heinous uh, crimes against humanity we could imagine. Um, And so, you know, you mentioned slavery yet again one of the other, um, you know, worst uh, crimes that we could possibly uh, imagine. But we do need to to, um, to um, recognize, you know, differentiate, you know, the, differentiate, uh, you know the, the different types of uh, heinous crimes um, just so that we can be um, specific uh, about them, about their causes, uh, about, you know, um, how they're uh, perpetrated and, and orchestrated. Um, And about also how we would investigate, prosecute, and punish them.
0: Would it be appropriate to say that the objective of the slave trade was to make people into property and then to use them for one's own economic advancement? Through the course of these activities, many blacks died. Mm -hmm. But the end objective was to enrich the slave owners, not to kill all black people. Whereas in a genocide, the objective is death. Whereas in slavery, the objective is economic uh, growth and a
1: byproduct is death. Would that be inappropriate? That, that's right. Yes. Okay. Um, if, uh, the, the key distinction of, of genocide is, um, is the elimination of, or, or in part of, mm-hmm. of the group. Um, slavery, uh, an equally heinous um, uh, offense, we can imagine, um, is, uh, is somewhat different mm-hmm. um, in the ways that, that you mentioned, although I would note... Um, that, that some um, instances of enslavement have included yeah. genocide. Right. Um, so there, there has been historically some overlap as well. So you mentioned
0: that when you've worked in these war crime tribunals, you were able to hear certain stories that resonated with you, that inspired empathy in you. Um, if it's too difficult, then I'd understand. Would you be able to share any of these stories sure. with our listeners to perhaps inspire this, a similar kind of empathy in them?
1: Yeah, um, I mean, one of the one of the earliest um, uh, survivors of the Rwandan genocide that I met was named Anzila. Uh, this is going back to one of my, I think, earliest trips to Rwanda, which was around um, 2000 or 2001. Mm-hmm. And what had happened to her just six years earlier in 94 um, was uh, when, when the genocide uh, erupted um, in April of 1994, uh, her family, she was, she's Tutsi and her, her family is Tutsi, um, was targeted. And what um, is Tutsi um, for our listeners? Tutsi is the minority um, ethnic group in, in Rwanda. Actually, there are two minority ethnic groups, the TWA um, and the Tutsi, um, but the genocide was mostly focused on uh, on the Tutsi. By, committed by what was the ethnic group? The majority ethnic group, which is called the Hutu. Okay, thank you. And um, so and Silla is is targeted, uh, and her family um, uh, was... Um, was attacked and her husband and uh, two children were slashed with machetes as, as she was uh, as well. And they're all thrown in a pit. And so um, she was at the bottom of the pit and her husband and two children um, were piled on top of her and, um, and died. Uh, And um, she regained consciousness, um, you know, uh, Lord knows how. uh, And, um, was able to, uh, to crawl out of the pit um, and hide in the marshes um, for, the, for the remainder of the genocide. And you know she remains to this day scarred um, physically and, and certainly emotionally um, by what happens. And, and here's really uh, one of the most amazing aspects of the story, um, which is that to this day she lives next door um, to the person that she accuses of doing this. Um, and so we see in in Rwanda um, these sorts of situations, where, um, in part because the the country is so small, um, but also in part because there are so many people who participated in the genocide and not all have been addressed, um, that we we to the state see some people who uh, live side by side um, with with. Um, the people who perpetrated um, uh, these terrible crimes against them. So
0: I'd like to use this point to segue into your legal career. You mentioned that she continues to live not next door to the person who did this, the perpetrator of these crimes, but to the person she names as a perpetrator. So there's something called a Truth and Reconciliation Commission, which is a legal body, I'll allow you to speak on that in a moment, And I want you to segue from that into your legal work in America, be it as a law professor teaching future generations of law students, be it uh, at the U.S. uh, Supreme Court, and how legal measures, which is a lot of what your career um, is about, have been used to uh, thwart future um, genocides, but also heal from past genocides.
1: Um, so there's basically a whole um, a range of options that are available to um, to address mass atrocities, truth commissions. Um, are one example that, that you mentioned, war crimes tribunals would be another, and still uh, there are others as well, like amnesty and exile. My latest book, United States Law and Policy on Transitional Justice, um, lays out all of these options, some of which are um, merely theoretical or haven't actually been um, put into practice, others of which have, uh, of course, been pursued. And it talks about the United States' experience, the U.S. government's experience with them, either by being directly involved in them or supporting them or opposing them. Mm-hmm. Um, the Truth uh, Commission, like, like the one you mentioned, perhaps the most famous example is from um, South Africa and actually, coincidentally, um, the very same year uh, in which Rwanda created its war crimes tribunal one thousand nine hundred and ninety four South Africa created its its Truth and Reconciliation Commission, uh, which is uh, the most famous um, such commission that 's ever existed and These are very different approaches. Um, a war crimes tribunal is very much uh, retributive is is legalistic um, and um, focuses on bringing perpetrators to justice. A truth commission um, is is different. Um, In the case of South Africa, and some truth commissions have been a little different, but in the case of South Africa, in exchange for truthful testimony, um, amnesty or immunity was offered. The idea being that you could incentivize people to um, literally, for example, um, you know, tell where the bodies are, are buried um, if you promise not to prosecute them. Um, and so over time, you know, truth commissions have been designed in different ways and um, around the, the world and have succeeded to different degrees. Um, but a lot of it comes down to um, what the society thinks is the best way forward. Um, And what is also most likely to promote reconciliation and healing. Um, Some people think that tribunals don't necessarily do that, um, but their advocates would say that's not necessarily the point anyway. The point is to punish. Um, And truth commissions um, are sort of viewed as more um, promoting uh, reconciliation. Um, So, you know, we... Throughout the world, um, you know there there is really a diversity of approach and opinion as to which of these bodies is um, more appropriate. Appropriate, and a lot of it also has to do with the circumstance. Um, so, for example, in Rwanda, there was a decisive military defeat mm-hmm. um, of the Hutu extremists, and so. Um, those who you know, were victors of that um, conflict were able to implement whichever type of approach they wanted and they opted for retributive. In South Africa, there was really a, a stalemate and it was a negotiated peace. And so they arguably probably had less um, uh, of a range of options, a more narrow range of options. And so part of the negotiated peace was that the lead perpetrators would not be prosecuted Mm -hmm. Um, so some people think that it's actually partly related to how the conflict ends Hmm. that you would have um, a particular range of options Um, bringing this
0: back to your life Mm -hmm. to the life of Zach Kaufman in his legal career you worked in the Supreme Court. You've been at you. You currently are at Harvard. Can you tell us a little bit about how all these experiences inform your work today.
1: Certainly. Um, well, all throughout my travels um, and and the work that I've done in the field, I've always um, you know kept a journal of everything I've kind of seen and done and learned. And that really was what sparked my early um, interest in writing. Um, people kept asking me for stories of, you know, what was happening in the field and, you know, like you, um, you know, what, what have victims and survivors um, suffered? You know, mm-hmm. can, can you actually explain a little bit more in detail? Um, and so I started writing uh, about um, about my experiences, what I'd seen, and and also my critiques. Um, there, you know, especially uh, when I was working at the the three tribunals that I served at, I um, I noticed that they were you know, not perfect um, and that they certainly um, had a lot of room for improvement. Mm-hmm. And so um, a lot of my early work was sort of critiquing and making policy prescriptions about um, how international legal institutions um, could improve. That then inspired me to um, pursue a career in academia mm-hmm. um, where I could dedicate uh, my time to writing, teaching and lecturing about um, about mass atrocities, particularly the legal and uh, political issues involved. Sure.
0: So, um, so
1: I, were you able? Were did any of these? I guess how did
0: you, how did your Supreme Court experience? is that just sharpening your legal mind, or were there any issues related to genocide that came across your desk during that time?
1: Well, um, I, I felt that in order to be effective at um, at my field of specialty being uh, mass atrocities, Mm -hmm. um, I needed to learn uh, about the law generally. Mm -hmm. Um, And of course people, you know, when you go to law school, you do do exactly that. Um, And, you know, there was an opportunity arose um, later on to serve at the U.S. Supreme Court um, where I was focusing on international legal issues and human rights and some other Mm -hmm. um, related matters. Um, So I didn't focus exclusively um, or even primarily on uh, atrocity issues. I was there more to, um, as you said, sort of hone my my legal skills generally and also to contribute what I could, um, particularly on international law. So who did you clerk for? Did you clerk for one particular justice? It it wasn't a clerkship. It was a fellowship, which is a different uh, position. Um, The clerks um, work on the day-to-day operations of the court in the sense of um, focusing on the cases. Mm -hmm. Um, The fellows, and there are about four clerks per justice, Mm -hmm. the fellows, of which there are four for the entire Supreme Court, Mm -hmm. are more focused on assisting the um, Supreme Court as a um, as a branch, as a political institution, mm-hmm. um, and so we were involved in the in the operations of the of the court so suppose you had
0: uh, nine justices in front of you who were the justices who were there while you were there currently, um, there are not nine, but suppose that there were um, so uh, as, as we 're approaching the end of the podcast, i 'd like to ask you this final question so you 're speaking to these nine justices and you 're telling them why uh US policy needs to pre- work to prevent future genocides um what the purpose uh is of i guess um, or maybe we might be in a in a legal we may, we may be in a classroom in in uh, Yale law school or in Harvard and you're talking to your students what's the why have you been so involved in in trying to advance the public interest through your work on genocides, what, is, what do you hope your legacy will be? What do you hope the United States' legal legacy will be to the world um, in preventing these atrocities from happening again? So I guess, what would you tell the justices or your students, you know, this is, what we, this is why we ought to care, this is why I care, and this is, at the end of the day, what I hope the United States will leave for the rest of the world in order to prevent these things from happening again?
1: I I think I would start by emphasizing our common humanity. Um, You know, we as in the United States are a nation of immigrants and many of us have come from or we have friends and family who remain in um, deeply troubled countries. Um, Our country itself um, faces ongoing um, issues of discrimination, um, some violently so as well. Mm -hmm. And so when I think of genocide, I think of perhaps the worst Manifestation of that—that um, that discrimination um, could become so uh, egregious that um, its perpetrators would think that you simply need to eliminate an entire group of people. Um, so, what I would—the message I would hope to convey is that um, we must focus on on our common humanity, the basic principle of equality and fairness, mm-hmm. um, and that we must. Um, help each other, um, especially in our greatest uh, times of need. And, you know, one thing that I would also say is, you know, but for the grace of God, it might be you in that position. By some coincidence of birth, um, we are, you know, in the relative security that we find ourselves here speaking today in Washington, D.C., Um, whereas others, by um, their dint of birth, um, find themselves in Aleppo, Syria, um, you know, being attacked uh, incessantly. Uh, and, um, and I think that we need to, you know, recognize and, and appreciate our own humility and good fortune um, and, uh, and seek to assist each other where we can.
0: That has been Zach Kaufman, Senior Fellow at Harvard University School of Government. And former United States Supreme Court fellow, um, publisher of three books, who speaks about um, the capriciousness of, of fortune. We, genocide is a uniquely human phenomenon um, where we target an entire group or part of a group for extermination. Zach stresses that, that it could really it's not merit-based who is targeted, who is victimized. In fact, it has happened in the industrialized world, it has happened in the developing world. It's happened in many different parts of the world. Um, and what Zach stresses is a desire to recognize our common humanity. He speaks of personal anecdotes um, that put a face. On, on the atrocities of a genocide but also um, has a pragmatic approach to um, genocide and its prevention through his legal career and uh, I think what Zach tries to say is that through his academic career um, through his career in Department of State, Department of Justice um, and through his liter- burgeoning literary career That there is a crime of crimes that ought to be uh, prevented as a matter of national security interest, as a a matter of human interest. That for Zach, the public interest um, is one that can be more broadly defined than something that is necessarily immediately happening domestically in the United States. For Zach, he has a world perspective. And with that perspective, he sees it uh, as a responsibility of humanity to look out for these um, hapless victims of uh, incredibly unfathomable uh, 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 crimes uh, that, 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 that demonstrate the worst that humanity um, can do. So Zach is dedicated to advancing the public interest by fighting this scourge of humanity. Zach, I'd like to thank you so much for joining us here today. Thank you so much, Jordan. It's been an honor. And this has been episode 136 of Public Interest Podcast with your host, Jordan Cooper, where we interview politicians, activists, advocates, and others who seek to improve the state of the world. Remember to subscribe on publicinterestpodcast.com, listen on iTunes, your podcast app, uh, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Blueberry, Player FM, Facebook, or Twitter. Uh, should you wish to leave a message for Zach, you can call 240-630-0380 and that voicemail will be conveyed to him. Thank you so much for listening. We'll talk to you next time.